0: Welcome to Thinking Nation's series, Thinking Historically, where we connect students to scholars and their research as they explore historical topics and arguments in their classes. Today, we are Thinking Historically with Dr. Nadia Williams, professor of ancient history at University of West Georgia. Dr. Williams, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So the students engaging with our curriculum will be Uh, Answering this prompt, which says, "Compare and contrast the governments of the ancient Greek city-states of Athens and Sparta." So, Dr. Williams, how would you approach this prompt?
1: Well, in a way, this the um, comparison—and well, the both the compare and contrast here are going to be very easy because you're dealing with very different city-states. You have a democracy in Athens, and you have an oligarchy in Sparta that also has a monarchy. So you have very different approaches there. And actually the Greeks themselves had specific terms for that. Um, The Athenians talked about themselves as having a state of uh, isonomia, having like equality of law uh, for all citizens, whereas the Spartans talked about themselves as having eonomia, the state of having good laws. So good laws don't have to be equal, say the Spartans. Uh, obviously the Athenians would disagree. Uh, so looking at kind of who was involved in the government, of course, would be that that feeds into that definition because in a democracy, of course, you involve the vast majority of people that you possibly can, which of course still has limitations. And I guess we'll we'll get to that in a minute too. Whereas with Sparta, you had a clear definition. Obviously you have the two kings, so there were two hereditary monarch uh, monarchy lines. Uh, And then you have uh, a council of elders. And beyond that, you have a council of citizens, but they didn't have a whole lot of power most of the time. Uh, By contrast, in Athens, um, I think one of the most shocking elements is the top uh, political office each year, the archons, um, were appointed by drawing lots. Just imagine Mm. electing, uh, your top officials. I mean, right now, as of this recording, we just had a round of elections in this country and none of them, I assure you, were done by drawing <laughs> lots. So that tells you something about the attitude of the Athenians towards their citizens. The idea that, sure. you know, all citizens technically are qualified to help out and lead in some way.
0: Yeah, that that is a really interesting kind of idea to unravel the you know the purpose of, of drawing lots. Uh, if, if we could go back to one of the first things that you said how in Sparta it was uh, government was defined more by oligarchy and monarchy versus democracy in Athens. Uh, for our students could you give a, a quick definition of, of those three terms oligarchy, monarchy, and democracy?
1: Yes, and all of them in fact derive from the Greek. So uh, oligarchy, so uh, the rule of the few oligoi. Um, Monarchy, uh, the rule of literally one. Uh, Of course, in Sparta you have two monarchs, so okay, Um, bending that definition a little bit. But in Athens you have a democracy, so demos are the people. And in Athens, they very much, in political speeches, the Athenians talk about the demos, the power of the demos, the voice of the demos. So, um, so that's important.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate that. That's really helpful. The, 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 the roots of, of the words makes them come alive. Uh, so what you've so far talked about are these kind of stark contrasts between Sparta and Athens. What are some similarities that we might see between these two governments?
1: Well, one similarity has to do with the emphasis uh, on men serving in the military. So citizens in both of these city-states had to serve in the military. Um, And Sparta, in fact, was renowned for its military, as we know, the training, that that's all that they did, uh, was the focus on military training from childhood. Really, um, screening started at the moment of birth. Are you? Are, do you look like you're going to be a good soldier? Uh, in Athens, all um, all Athenians aged 18 uh, were subject to uh, if there were um, if a war were to arise, were subject to the draft. Um, and usually, usually not everybody would be serving all at the same time, but still a certain number would be. Uh, if you were an Athenian. At some point in your life, you absolutely served, and eventually, in the fourth century, there is a clear kind of um, formulation of training everybody for military service. So, ages eighteen to twenty-ish, uh, you might be training to be uh, to be a soldier for Athens, and that prepares you to be a good citizen.
0: Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. So that that military piece is uh, definitely a clear similarity. Uh, So I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, in, in what we've talked about so far, uh, these, you know, these big ideas of government structure, um, the who rules, and then service to that government structure. um, What are some other ways that historians might approach comparing these governments? Um, I don't know if that... That means looking at you know the, the the common person or maybe how they relate to the broader Mediterranean world or, or, or something along those lines. But how might other his, uh, historians explore this this comparison?
1: Well, uh, I'm actually going to cheat and use one historian who did this, and that is Thucydides, the Athenian general mm. and historian of uh, the fifth century who wrote for us the history of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, And what he says at the beginning of his history is, looking at, um, he's imagining how would future historians, and especially archeologists, looking at Athens and Sparta, how would they perceive Athens versus Sparta? And what he says is, in the future, if somebody, like if all of the people are gone and all you have is material remains, uh, if, If somebody were to look at Athens, they would say, this was an amazing power. I mean, look at all those Mm. gorgeous buildings, all this literature, all this stuff that they left. And then if they were to go to Sparta, they would look at it and say, like, there's nothing here. This was clearly not a great power. Wow. So Thucydides' point is, there are really kind of completely different ways of thinking about the world. Because for the Athenians, being a great state, a prosperous state meant we're going to build fancy stuff. And Pericles, in fact, was all about this. The buildings, beautifying Athens, kind of the golden age of Athens under Pericles involves doing even more of this construction than ever before. Whereas at Sparta, it was kind of like, we're, we're pouring all our money into military training. Thanks so much. Uh-huh. We don't need pretty buildings. Uh, <laughs> we hardly know of any literature or... Um, from Sparta, we have a couple of poets that we know of who wrote martial poetry, like Terteus, who wrote really kind of uh, bloody sort of like battle songs that
0: Spartans supposedly
1: sang as they marched into battle. But nothing really just beautiful for beauty's sake.
0: Yeah, that's that's fascinating, because I'm, I'm thinking about uh, document B in, in this uh, unit, and it's uh, written from an Athenian perspective, uh, and yet it is, you know, a record of the Spartan constitution, which, I, you know, further uh, kind of il- illuminates this idea of, of, of what the focus was in Sparta versus in Athens. That's, that's really interesting. I, I, I feel like there's something there we can talk about, uh, you know, the, the benefit and beauty of culture and architecture uh, instead of military and war. Uh, but that's a really interesting, uh, you know, piece of history that I, I didn't put together until just now.
1: Well, and it seems like the Athenians uh, were certainly thinking about it, that you can't have it all. Like, you're either mm-hmm. going to be really good at this one thing uh, or at the others. Although, actually, some Athenians perhaps would take an issue with this. Um, hmm. So in the cool. early 5th century, in, um, when the Athenians defeated the Persians at Marathon uh, during the first per- Persian invasion of Greece. They did this without the Spartans. And it was this big moment in the Greek world of like, wait, the Athenians can fight just as well as the Spartans.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's fascinating. Is there a particular primary source that uh, you kind of go to when you think of Greek government in the ancient world?
1: yeah so it's one that actually kind of complicates this story so in this Mm. unit the comparison is athens and sparta and that's a great way to approach things because these are the two city states about which we know the most but a lot of uh, greek historians today challenge that paradigm and say you know it's neither athens nor sparta were the typical greek city-state really And actually, there's probably no such thing as a typical Greek city-state anyway. Um, So one document that I really like is from the mid-4th century BC, and it's called How to Survive Under Siege. It's a military manual. Like, if you happen to be in a city under siege and you have no military training, here's how you organize a citizen militia, including everybody, including even women, and defend your city. And what's even more fascinating, this was written by a retired military general.
0: Wow. So this is it, somebody, go ahead. Yeah, is that is that document from one of these city states or is it somewhere? It is
1: not. That's what's so cool about it. It is um, the general who wrote it, uh, Aeneas uh, the tactician. Obviously, the tactician part is probably not what his actual name was, but that's what we call him. Aeneas the tactician. Um, He probably was from the region of Stymphalia, uh, so Arcadia, northern Peloponnese. So not far from Sparta, closer
0: to Mm -hmm. Corinth,
1: though. Um, So he's not from either Sparta or Athens, although obviously he's very well familiar with both.
0: Sure. So what I'm hearing in, in this... This primary source is one of the the ways that we can think about ancient ancient Greece. You know, and so often the go to comparison is this, right? Uh, Sparta and Athens is to really expand this uh, um, th- this comparison into into something that's not uh, just of two, right? But is kind of showing this conglomerate if, um, of uh, city states of, of governments. And so if, from like a, a high level, um, what are some other ways that expanding beyond those two city-states complicates this comparison, complicates this narrative?
1: So instead of thinking of Greece, and perhaps it's our modern world that really complicates it for us because we think of Greece as a country, right? Because today it is. Right. Uh, if you think of tiny little city-states, some of them only... Several hundred citizens, some several thousand, but tiny city states, each of them had its own government, its own economy, its own military, and so on and so forth. So you have these tiny units, and it's just really difficult for us to imagine how this worked. And again, about most of them, we know just about nothing except that they existed. Now, archaeology mm. helps us a lot. Uh, so, for example, um, just to name one, this was this started out as a colony in Sicily, so a Greek city-state in Sicily, Megara Hibalea, where archaeologically we can tell that when it was founded, um, it was created on a grid. So imagine this: an ancient city laid out on a very precise grid with very similar, uh, with identical-sized plots for each wow. citizen, initially, and then within a generation, it all goes kind of it all goes chaotic because you can see some people are clearly buying like a neighbor's plot and expanding, uh, and so on. So almost the initial,
0: yeah, the initial idea kind of mirrors that, that democratic, that democratic view that we see in Athens. Wow. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The, it's a marriage of, of history and archeology span to, to uncover that that's really cool that's fascinating and we Uh, don't have the
1: whole story like we don't know how the quality kind of we can just guess archaeologically but anyway
0: yeah so maybe to continue this idea what are what are some areas that um either you or other historians are exploring around um the complexity of ancient greece right now where is the scholarship going
1: well so, a lot of it um, is driven by archaeological discoveries, that's for sure, because that's where we get our new sources. The vast majority of other sources, you know, something like Thucydides, Herodotus, well, we have what we have. Right. Uh, but also, there's a lot more comparative thinking. So, for example, uh, somebody I knew in grad school wrote um, his dissertation that became a book on uh, democratic uh, shoemakers. So just looking at okay. cobblers in Athens and how they kind of functioned in society, and a lot of his research had to do with comparisons to more recent kind of early modern um, trade associations and so on.
0: Is wow, that's interesting. Is is there is the connection between you know early modern trade associations? Is that a, a forced connection in order to kind of illuminate what was happening in ancient Greece? Or are are historians finding that there's, you know, this interperiod connection in what it meant to be a cobbler or what it meant to be some other tradesperson?
1: Well, I think you just summed up the debate about this. Uh, Those who who find this avenue fruitful would say, like, this is certainly not not just forced. You're not comparing apples and oranges. We really do have something similar uh, in these trade associations. of course, yeah, there are those who say that this is just kind of excessive. But, you know, in general, that's really the two categories into which ancient historians fall. Those who say the sure. ancient world is too different from anything today. So any comparison is just going to be forced and unproductive. And then there are mm-hmm. those who, um, who would say, actually, those comparisons are closer to us than you might think, uh, you know, assuming certain differences nevertheless. And I think I firmly yeah. fall in that
0: second camp. Yeah, I mean, I I think that it the the second camp really began with looking at ancient Athens, you know, as uh, um, the the founders of the United States uh, were, you know, le- leaning on um, a, a product of the Enlightenment. Uh, but yeah, I, that 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 connection, you know, has a lot of uh, kind of precedent for. For, for existing in the, the government space. And it's, it's interesting to see how historians are taking that into the trade space and the economic space. Uh, so Dr. Williams, what, what drew you to studying ancient Greece?
1: Well, I first took Latin uh, and then I started Greek in college. And my first semester in college, I also took just a really wonderful introduction to Greek history and I was hooked.
0: That's great, and you focus on military aspects of yes. of the ancient world. Uh, what? Yeah. What? Can you give us an example of, of something that you've you've looked at? Um,
1: I'm really yeah, fascinated regards... with. Well, so a lot of the assumptions in uh, previous scholarship have been around war was something that the men did, right? You, uh, In time of war, the women and children stay behind the city walls, the men go out to war. And I've been fascinated by those glimpses where we see uh, civilians being drawn into conflict. Uh, it's not something to celebrate or something that's really pretty. And yet it's the reality of life that people um, did not just sit inside their city walls and wait mm-hmm. to be conquered and sold into slavery.
0: Yeah, that's... And that's so helpful, right? For humanizing the historical experience, I feel like we yeah. we're we're learning more and more that you know history um, is is far more detailed and complex um, and important to every person that lived, not just uh, those who fought and those who wrote. So that, that, that's great Absolutely. work. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Williams, for joining us, and uh, we appreciate your scholarship so much.
1: Thank you.